Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about a medication that's available over the counter that can reverse an opioid overdose and save someone's life. Who's most likely to encounter someone who's overdosed? It's probably going to be a member of, of our community. And we want to arm that person with the tools that they need to help that individual. We'll explore what pregnancy is like for a woman with high blood pressure. If the blood pressures show evidence that a woman has underlying hypertension, we can look at that, we can call it that, and we can start monitoring. And we'll hear from experts in pediatric trauma about the importance of wearing helmets for winter sports. We see a lot of concussions with all of the snow-related activities, uh, but like I was mentioning a little bit earlier, we see the whole spectrum of head injuries. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss how a woman with high blood pressure can have a healthy pregnancy. Then we'll talk with a surgeon and a nurse about the skiing and snowboarding injuries that can be prevented or reduced by the use of helmets. But first, we'll learn about an over-the-counter medicine that can reverse an opioid overdose to save someone's life. Recently, I attended naloxone training, and I found it so interesting that I invited the presenter to come on HealthLink on Air. So here with me in the studio today is Dr. Willie Eggleston, a clinical toxicologist and doctor of pharmacy in the upstate New York Poison Center. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So as a way of putting the number of these opioid deaths in perspective, um, tell us for the year 2016, how many people died from opioid? Sure. So the numbers just keep climbing here in the United States. Uh, in the U.S. as, as a whole in 2016, uh, there were roughly 42,000 overdose deaths related to opioids uh, across the country. And that's up significantly. Um, as recently as 2011, um, that number is 92% higher than, than what we saw in 2011. Uh, here locally in Onondaga County, we had 126 deaths related to o- opioid overdose. Um, and that's up from just 33 in 2011. So uh, at a county level, at a state level, we're mirroring the national trends and that we're seeing the numbers continue to climb at, at an alarming rate. Wow. So, and we have to go back quite a few years to understand why we're in the situation we're in today, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, everyone wants to kind of find one reason how we got here and it's, it's really multifactorial. There were a lot of, of issues that led to this, uh, overprescribing of opioids, uh, a little bit too aggressive uh, of a campaign maybe from some of the manufacturers making the opioids. Um, But you can really see the numbers start to tick up uh, in 2008, 2010. uh, And and now they've brought us to the point that we're at today. All right. So where we are now, we've got more people using heroin and more people are dying. um, And more people are dying at an increased rate. Yeah. And and, and part of of how we got here is, is that we recognized back in 2009, 2010 that we were overprescribing opioids. And as a result of that, more and more people were being diagnosed with opioid use disorder, um, which formerly was, was called addiction. And so we wanted to make sure that we weren't 
continuing to to make this a growing problem, and the number of opioid prescriptions as a result of that dropped significantly. Uh, we we wanted to to prevent further individuals from becoming addicted to opioids. The problem was is that when that happened, and and that was something important that needed to happen. But when that happened, we forgot to provide resources for those patients who were already uh, suffering from opioid use disorder. So in a sense, we, we cut off their supply of opioids, but we did that without resources, and so they looked for alternatives. And in a lot of cases, that was heroin. Heroin and synthetic opioids? Yeah, synthetic opioids are, are sort of a new problem that we're dealing with. Uh, so drugs like fentanyl and carfentanyl that are, are synthetically produced opioids that have made their way into the U.S. and are being sold either as heroin or, or just being sold as synthetic opioids. And these drugs are even stronger than heroin. So it takes a much smaller dose to have lethal effects. And because they're being shipped in in such large quantities from places like China, uh, they're available very, very cheaply. And so uh, a lot of the individuals who are, are dealing these medication, dealing these drugs on the street are turning to these because they can turn up a, a higher profit. Uh, and, and some of our patients are turning to these because sometimes they're available more cheaply. And they're killing as many or more people. Absolutely. So when you look at those same 2016 statistics, heroin killed uh, just about 15,000 people in the U.S. in 2016. Uh, and these synthetic opioids contributed to somewhere around 20,000 deaths. Um, so they've, okay. they've even surpassed heroin. Well, let's shift the discussion um, to naloxone and what, what this medication is, because it's not a new medicine, right? No, naloxone is, has been around for a very long time. It's something that anyone who works in the healthcare field will be familiar with. It's an antidote that, when used, goes to the sites in your body where opioid drugs work, and it kicks those opioid drugs out so that you can reverse the effects. Uh, so that will help people who have overdosed to start breathing again, to start to wake up, and can potentially save their life. Uh, obviously, it's just part of how you would address an overdose. You still want to call 911. You still want to get that patient to a healthcare facility so that they can get the treatment that they need. Uh, but the naloxone itself starts to reverse those effects immediately. The reason it's been in the news so much is is that it's kind of made its way out of the world of healthcare and into uh, our, our normal lives. Uh, so there was a big push to expand access to naloxone to start to try and prevent some of these opioid-related deaths from happening. It made its way into the hands of EMTs, uh, police officers, firefighters, and in recent years, it's now made its way out into the community. In most states in the U.S., you can walk into a pharmacy and you can buy naloxone without a prescription. The thought being, you know, who's most likely to encounter someone who's overdosed? It's probably going to be a member of, of our community. And we want to arm that person with the tools that they need to help that individual uh, while EMS is on their way. So pretty much good Samaritans, people who would be prepared Maybe the person who would go to the, the trouble of learning CPR might be the person who would go to the trouble of having this, I don't know, in their first aid supplies yeah, or something. Yeah, absolutely. And and the nice part about it is is that the antidote itself 
is very, very low risk. If you or I were to get a big dose of it right now, nothing would happen to us. So if you're wrong, if it's someone who's having a heart attack, someone who's having a stroke, and you give them naloxone, you're not gonna harm them in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so the risk is very low for giving it. And then the benefits can be astronomical because you can reverse the effects of this, this drug and you can potentially save that patient's life. Now, does it only work on opioid overdoses? Okay. So it, it only reverses the effects of opioids, which is why we really strongly uh, recommend calling 911 before you even give it. Because you want to make sure that, that someone who can help and who has medical training is on the way in case you are wrong. Because there's a lot of other drugs that can make you sleepy and out of it. There's a lot of other medical conditions that can, that can make you so that you're not responding. And so we're still giving the antidote in the hopes that it's going to help but we want to make sure that there are resources on their way to, to provide the real treatment that that patient might need. Oh, good point. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Willie Eggleston, a clinical toxicologist with the Upstate New York Poison Center. Now, from what I understand, there's different ways of administering naloxone, um, intramuscular, intranasal, atomizer, nasal spray. You were involved in a, uh, testing these at the state fair, New York State Fair last year, right? Yeah, the, there's a lot of different ways that you can give it. And, and the problem with when it started becoming available to the public was we had no idea which device the public was going to be the most comfortable with and which device they were going to be able to successfully administer in the case of an overdose. And we had, our, of course, our, our opinions as to which ones we thought were the best, but obviously you want to get data. So at the fair, uh, we've now been there twice. And while we were there, we did a study and we randomized individuals in the public to get one of these three device types, whether it was the shot that you give into a muscle, uh, the multi-step uh, nasal atomizer device, or the nasal spray single step device. And what we found was that when patients or when individuals received training, they were able to more successfully give the antidote to a mannequin if they had one of the nasal devices, and they could give it the fastest if they had the single step nasal device. And in our second running of the trial, uh, we did it again, but without training to see could folks figure this out with absolutely no experience whatsoever. And on the second running, we found that individuals who had the single step nasal spray had the highest rate of success with no training. Uh, th those numbers were upwards of 80%. Uh, so that really suggests that if you are going to make this available to the public, the single step nasal spray device is probably the one that is going to give that person the best chance of saving that other individual's life. So, and that's available um, without a prescription at a pharmacy do you know what the cost range is? Are they so? It depends on the day, but it's anywhere from forty to fifty dollars at the moment. Uh, there are programs in place for individuals who are not able to afford that. So New York State has a program uh, where you can get reimbursement through uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, if you can't afford your naloxone. Uh, and there is also a large number of opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution programs in New York State. You can find those at the New York State Department of Health's website. And if you contact those programs, a lot of them will provide you with training and naloxone at no charge. Interesting. All right. So walk me through how this works. Um, let's say that I have this nasal spray that I carry with me, and I come across someone who's... Um, passed out or seems to be unconscious. Sure. What, um, what would you advise me to do? So the general approach to finding uh, someone that you are concerned about is 
pretty straightforward. So the first thing you want to do is take a quick look around. Make sure that the scene is safe for you to approach the patient because you certainly don't want to put yourself in harm's way. So once you've uh, clearly seen that, that it's safe for you to approach, you're going to approach the person, try and wake them up, hit their shoulder, yell, are you okay? If they're not waking up, they're not responding, that's when you want to make sure that, that help is being notified. Uh, so either yourself or someone who's on scene, make sure that they are calling 911 and they're getting someone there. Okay. You can then, um, if you suspect an opioid overdose, uh, so someone who has slowed breathing, who's not awake, who has small pupils, uh, they would then be someone you'd want to try and give the antidote to. So if you have the nasal spray, the single step, it's a preloaded device, and you're simply going to put the front end, the plunger of that device into the person's nostril, one of their nostrils, and you're going to push down on the other end of the device, and that's going to release the drug into their nose. The drug gets absorbed by the blood vessels in the skin on the inside of the nose, and it works within about five to seven minutes after you give it. So if they're not breathing, the medicine will still absorb into their body? Exactly. So it's not like an inhaler where you need to breathe to make the medicine work. The medicine actually gets absorbed right through the skin on the inside of the nostril. Uh, So whether or not they're breathing, they will still absorb the medication. So how soon will I know whether this works? So it really depends on how much drug the person has taken and if you're correct in that it's truly an opioid. It can work as quick as three to four minutes, but it can take upwards of seven minutes. Uh, If you have a second dose available and the person hasn't woken up in four or five minutes, you can give that second dose uh, to try to get some extra drug on board. But Odds are by that time, EMS has probably already arrived and and they can help uh, take over that patient's care. Um, And can you tell me what what will the person be like if they're awakened from being overdosed? Will they be disoriented or? Likely when they first wake up, they will be because they they have no idea what's going on. They've just woken up. um, So they will be a little bit disoriented. Uh, Do your best to, to keep them calm and let them know that help is on the way. Uh, sometimes because of the delayed effects of the medication, you may not even see the person wake up before EMS arrives. Uh, but your best bet is to give the dose, um, put the person on their side because they might throw up as a result of, of having the antidote given to them. And then just keep yourself at a safe distance until, until EMS has arrived and keep a close eye on the person. Neat. Well, we're about to run out of time, but I, I want to make sure to ask about the Good Samaritan Law and what that how that applies in this situation. Sure. So the Good Samaritan Law protects individuals who are not working as medical professionals in a healthcare environment uh, so that they can provide uh, immediate medical attention to someone who is, who is suffering from an overdose or from another medical ailment as long as they are acting in good faith. So if you see someone who's on the street who's unresponsive and you think it's an opioid and you give them naloxone, the Good Samaritan Law protects you uh, and allows you to do that. And if I'm at a party where there's drugs and I end up having to use my naloxone I won't get arrested for... Sure. So New York State has laws in place that protect you if you were to call 911 and you were to have some drug on your person. So as long as it's a small quantity just for personal use and you don't have uh, uh, some sort of felony record, um, then you will not be prosecuted as a result of having that in place. I'm certainly not a lawyer. I would refer folks to the New York State Department of Health's website where they they outline the specifics of the Good Samaritan Law, and you can take a look at that and see who is protected under that. 
Well, neat. Well, and we also ought to um, point out that any listeners who are interested in establishing like a naloxone training for a group or something um, can reach out to you at 315-464-8906 to talk about trying to get that set up. We'd be happy to help facilitate that. Appreciate you being here. Uh, My guest has been Dr. Willie Eggleston, a doctor of pharmacy in the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, pregnancy and high blood pressure. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. High blood pressure can pose risks during pregnancy, but today we're talking with an upstate obstetrician who specializes in maternal fetal medicine, and he's going to explain how a woman can safely and successfully deliver a healthy baby, even if she has a history of high blood pressure. Dr. John Folk is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thanks for talking with me today, Dr. Folk. Oh, it's my pleasure. So what is the advice for a woman who has high blood pressure and wants to become pregnant? What, is she, what needs to be done before she conceives? Well, a lot of the care of uh, medical issues, like you know, common uh, medical problems like hypertension, diabetes, asthma, autoimmune disorders, the whole spectrum of things that can go on uh, in a woman's health prior to making a decision to go ahead with pregnancy. In general, nowadays, uh, most of these conditions, if they're recognized, well-treated, and well-controlled uh, prior to pregnancy, um, tend to go well uh, with, with the pregnancy subsequently. So uh, um, our usual advice from the perinatal center is that uh, prior to becoming pregnant, if, if possible, um, a, uh, a consultation with primary care or specialist care doctors to make sure that all the the aspects of the blood pressure are well controlled and that uh, um, even a consultation with us beforehand to make sure that we're selecting medications that we can continue to use during pregnancy is another important consideration. Because some of the uh, things that you mentioned, asthma and uh, immune diseases, things like that, um, require medications. I mean, people may be taking medications for those. So are those necessarily safe during pregnancy? Well, there, there are, for the most part, most medications are safe. And the advice that I generally give uh, to my patients that are considering pregnancy is to, uh, uh, you know, not make any, any jump decisions about what to do with medications. Uh, there are certain medications that do bring up particular concern, like, for example, and uh, in, in, in the management of hypertension. Uh, a very effective class of medications that are commonly used in the non-pregnant population would be angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or ACE inhibitors or what are called ARBs, um, angiotensinids and receptor blocker agents. These okay. are all very good medications. However, they are 
uh, they are contraindicated for use during pregnancy because they can precipitate some uh, problems for the developing baby. So uh, where the preconceptual consultation would come in or in management prior to pregnancy is, is that we can look at the medications, look at all the other background issues that may be going on along with high blood pressure, like um, kidney problems, protein in the urine, blood in the urine, you know, any history of vascular disease, this kind of thing, um, can be taken into account. And then what we can do is then convert over to a medication we can use in pregnancy um, and make sure that the patient is stable and responds well to the medication, doesn't have unusual side effects, this kind of thing. Well, let me ask you, what is it that high blood pressure, what it, why is it so dangerous for, and is it dangerous for the mother or for the baby or both? Well, it's dangerous for both. Um, essentially, the, uh, the problems that, that moms can experience with uh, uh, blood pressure that's not well controlled during the pregnancy is that um, she would be considered at an increased risk for what's called preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders related to pregnancy. Um, preeclampsia is a condition that can, you know, in the general population, it usually affects something like uh, um, 5 to 10 percent of women, so most women don't develop this. However, someone who has underlying um, hypertension, particularly hypertension that may be associated with other um, issues like kidney disease, uh, that, that risk can go up anywhere from three to ten-fold, so it can become very important. What preeclampsia is is something that only happens to women when they're pregnant. It never happens to men. It never happens to women when they're not pregnant. But what happens is is the placenta now being part of the regulatory mechanism of the maternal circulation or, or, or you know, control of the, the heart and blood pressure and this kind of thing, um, can exert an influence that actually can make blood pressures worse. It can actually put strain on important organs like the kidneys, increasing um, protein loss through the urine. It can reduce the kidney's ability to filter uh, the important things that kidneys do filter. It can put stress on the liver. It can put stress on the mom's brain. It can do all kinds of things that could lead to uh, um, <clears throat> life-threatening or even life-ending complications if it is not well controlled like strokes, like liver rupture, liver failure, kidney failure, uh, these kinds of things. Wow, so the um, whole, every, your, whole, your life's whole, at risk, basically. Things, yes. okay. And then from the point of view of the baby, um, we, the way we understand preeclampsia now, it's, we don't have a, a huge, complete understanding of what triggers the problem. We just know you have to be pregnant, and we know it has to be, there has to be placenta involved with all those hormonal actions that go on with uh, regulating mom's uh, physiology during pregnancy. So a pregnancy that is likely to develop preeclampsia is one where the placenta developed in a situation where um, the robust connection that occurs between the mom's circulation and the placenta for the baby's circulation is just not as robust as it should be. Um, the blood flow is harder for the baby. Oxygen and nutrition is harder for the baby to get. Waste products is harder for the baby to, are harder for the baby to get rid of. So what ends up happening is is that stressed placenta has ways of releasing um, signals from the placental circulation to mom circulation that actually tries to compensate for that lack of blood flow to the placenta by increasing mom's blood pressure. 
And like anything else, you can have a, a, a regulatory response that is helpful for a while, but after a while it becomes maladaptive because it's over-regulating. And so then the, you know, the, the stress on the placenta with these increased blood pressure and all those other things I was talking about with preeclampsia actually can cause trouble for the baby too. Some of the things that we can see would be um, early labor, early delivery, and early separation of the placenta prior to birth. We call that a placental abruption. It's more common. Um, stillbirth is more common, unfortunately. Babies that are growing smaller than we expect, a condition we call intrauterine growth restriction, is more common. Um, so needing to deliver by cesarean as opposed to having a natural birth closer to the due date is more common. So really, it is a condition that sounds horrible the way I just described it, but with good, careful monitoring management um, you know, prior to pregnancy and then through the first, second, and third trimesters, we have had a, a really good incidence of having successful pregnancies, and successful pregnancy would be where mom and baby get to close to or even at term and deliver with minimal, if any, complications. So that is certainly possible with good prenatal care. So this is a, a high-risk pregnancy, though? Yes, it is. Okay, just by definition, no matter how, mm-hmm. how well things are going, it's still considered a high risk. It is. For, well, okay. um, go ahead. Oh, and I'd also like to say, you know, I, I personally don't like to think of high risk as yes or no. I mean, in my mind, I kind of think of it as a scale of 1 to 10, where I think of 1 as the, the, the risk that any healthy woman with no background in any medical issues would have for having a, a, a nice normal term delivery. Um, it's not zero because even even perfectly healthy, perfectly normal people, there is a small chance that there might be issues, including sure. preeclampsia later on. But, you know, 10 being the most horrendous risk. So depending on what else is going on, I mean, if someone has a, a bit of hypertension, they control it with diet, exercise, and maybe a low dose of a blood pressure medicine, that woman is going to have... A much, a much better chance of a really good outcome compared to somebody who, say, is on two or three blood pressure medicines, has already had a heart attack, already has weakened heart muscle because of hypertension, may already have kidney disease. We have taken care of patients like that, too. But as you can tell, it's, it, the difference between what the patient comes with and how well-controlled it is really does say a lot for how things tend to go with pregnancy. Um, a woman with high blood pressure, does that generally mean more medical appointments during the, during the pregnancy, and does it necessarily mean bed rest? Um, it, it, it might if, the, if that preeclampsia condition superimposes on the chronic hypertension, then uh, bed rest and hospitalization, early delivery, these kinds of things are more likely. Okay. But um, if we start off with someone who is relatively healthy with just blood pressure problems, um, they tend to, those patients tend to have pregnancies that are very much like anybody else's. Um, and the way prenatal care is set up, um, you know, a, a, the traditional prenatal care was kind of developed by the visiting nurses uh, services in Boston in the 1800s, where basically they knew that the thing that was, you know, the, they were most worried about as women in the general population approached their due date was toxemia, or what mm-hmm. we call preeclampsia now. And so, you know, visits once a month in the first part of pregnancy, 
couple of times a month, second to third part of pregnancy, and then towards the end, it's every week. So that's standard prenatal care, and that all came out of the tradition of watching for symptoms and signs of preeclampsia developing. And so with a patient with high blood pressure, that would just be someone we would want to make real sure was uh, following that kind of frequent monitoring, particularly in the third trimester as we're getting closer to the due date. We also might add in other things. We might do sonograms to evaluate how well the baby's growing at key points, like at 28 weeks or 32 weeks or 36 weeks, just to make sure the growth is going well. We check the amniotic fluid levels. We may also prescribe... um, Fetal testing, you know, where patients are, you know, hooked up to fetal monitors and watch how the baby's heart rate and watch how the contractions go. And there's like a paper strip that comes out. A lot of OB patients are familiar with this. But uh, instead of waiting until close to the due date to start that, we may start it earlier for a patient with a situation like that. All right. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. John Folk, a professor in the Division of Maternal and Fetal Medicine in Upstate's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and we're talking about high blood pressure in pregnancy. Now, from what I understand, a lot of people who have high blood pressure don't know they have it. So is it common for a woman to find out she's pregnant, come to the doctor for her first you know, prenatal examination and then learn that she's got a a problem with blood pressure? That certainly does happen. Um, Ideally, obviously, uh, you know, even as a specialist, I'm a very strong proponent for folks to, uh, women, particularly reproductive age women, women who are considering having babies, to have good primary care. And screening for blood pressure and screening for other things are, is a very important part of that. So that that's one good thing is that if if a woman is considering pregnancy um, and does not know you know hasn't had a blood pressure checked in a while or hasn't had her urine checked for protein or for sugar or then screened for diabetes or any of the other common conditions, um, I, I would strongly advocate for that. Um, but you know sometimes women will present and pregnancy is a time where they see. Um, care providers in an intensified kind of way. I mean, you see your your primary care doctor maybe once a year, twice a year. Uh, An obstetrical patient is seen every few weeks, even in the beginning of a pregnancy. It's still pretty frequent. So we do at times pick up um, underlying medical conditions, and hypertension is one of them. One of the things that helps us with this is that the physiologic changes of pregnancy that would reduce blood pressures and kind of mask a hypertension mm-hmm. doesn't really kick in until a patient is about 14, 16 weeks along in the pregnancy. So if we get some visits in that first trimester, if the blood pressures show evidence that a woman has underlying hypertension, we can look at that, we can call it that, and we can start monitoring, looking, you know, doing an evaluation and you know, for other issues related to kidney function, urine, testing, you know, liver function, platelet counts, blood counts, all the other things that go along with, with you know, side effects of hypertension. But then we also, you know, can start management, treatment if needed, and, uh, and, and, and helping the patient to understand what kinds of things that we're going to be watching for and what signs and symptoms of preeclampsia later on we might have to worry about. So even if a woman comes in, hasn't had primary care for a couple of three years, usually not since her last child, was born. Um, we certainly have some room in that first trimester to catch up. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. Are there 
other related health conditions that a woman who has high blood pressure might also have that, that sort of go together that you, you need to be well, aware of? Well, I mean, some of, the, some of the conditions that are naturally uh, associated with uh, um, hypertension would be underlying autoimmune conditions that are a bit more common among female patients compared to male patients. Uh, like systemic lupus erythematosus would be the you know common one, or SLE lupus, as it's commonly called, might be might be going on there, and that usually has other symptoms and signs that are going on, you know, like fatigue and rash, achy joints, and sores in the mouth and dry eyes and these other kinds of things. Or it might be something that's kind of asymptomatic and we may pick up. That's unusual, though. Um, okay. Commonly, hypertension is a, is a condition that's associated with, with increasing age. And so with increasing age comes other things like increasing weight, body mass index, and diabetes and that kind of thing. So it's not terribly unusual for um, low hypothyroidism, diabetes mellitus and hypertension to kind of run together. And so we kind of evaluate for that if we have a patient that seems to be showing evidence of one condition to make sure we don't have the others. Oh, good. That's good information. But basically, it is reasonable for a woman who has high blood pressure to expect that she could have a healthy baby. Yes, it is. Wonderful. In fact, well, I would say that, you know, we could, we could say for all patients that come in with chronic hypertension that about 85 to 90 percent of them are able to deliver. Oh, that's great news. My guest has been clinical associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Dr. John Folk. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, helmets for winter sports on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Bicyclists under the age of 14 are required to wear helmets in New York, and pediatric trauma experts from Upstate say it's important that young skiers and snowboarders also wear head protection. Here to explain why is Dr. Kim Wallenstein, a pediatric surgeon and pediatric trauma medical director, and nurse Kim Nasby. They're both from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. So you've both been involved in efforts to get New York State to pass a law that makes helmets mandatory for winter sports, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, have, do we know where that stands? Or it- Currently, it has passed uh, the Senate, and it is sitting in the Assembly right now for passage. They had a couple of uh, things that they wanted to change um, from last year when it went through. So those changes have been made, and now it sits waiting for um, approval. And we are very, very hopeful that that does get a, approval through New York State. Because this has been a multi-year effort. It has underway, been. So. It has okay. been a long time coming. Um, and it we have, uh, as injury prevention professionals and as trauma centers, have looked at the injury patterns um, over the span of a long time to kind of see what we could do to mitigate those injuries. And wearing helmets... 
um, for all sporting activities is something that we look at um, from a data standpoint. Um, and something that really is preventable are some of the major head injuries that are from skiing, snowboarding, and even tubing and sledding accidents in the winter. Okay. Even like you would think tubing would be kind of a safer thing, but not necessarily. Right? Not necessarily. It's similar to um, the, the thought process of, you know, riding your bike and rollerblading. Um, still a, a moving object, still um, the ability to have a impactful crash. Um, and in some tubing hills that are located right on the ski slopes, um, you're going just as fast as any snowboarder or skier would be going. Okay. Um, you said you've studied injury patterns. How do you how do you do that, Dr. Wallenstein? Well, injury patterns uh, are different really for every type of sport and every type of event. Uh, we look at our data uh, as the level one pediatric trauma center and the only one in upstate New York. We see a fair amount of the injured children uh, that come to our institution from the central New York area. And so we have a database of the types of injuries that we see. And we can look not only at our patients, but there are also state and national databases uh, that we can compare to as well to see what type of injury patterns there are with any type of event that happens to a child. Okay. And as to whether a helmet would be a thing that could help in that Correct, situation. because uh, we always ask, obviously, with the history of the of the incident or crash or whatever it is, you ask things like, with cars, are you wearing? Were you wearing your seatbelt? With uh, bikes or with snow sports, were you wearing a helmet? And so that data is in our system, in our regist registry, and we can go back and look at that and see if those children that wear helmets are less injured or have different injury patterns. Okay, now. Um I haven't heard us mention snowmobiles. Is that a different thing because it's motorized? Yes. So snowmobile helmets, um, it is a law to wear a snowmobile helmet in New York State. Okay. Um, similar to the motorcycle helmet law. Um, snowmobiles are a considered a motor vehicle, um, even though there's not they're not in, enclosed. Um, so they have a different crash test rating on their helmets than they would for, say, a ski, snowboarding, or tubing helmet. And what about ice skating? Ice skating has not been researched a whole lot in that field of head injury. Um, and I would imagine as the, as the data gets more in depth and as we start looking at individual um, sporting things, that I would see that ice skating would probably be coming to the forefront um, probably in the near future. Similar to if you, if you remember back, even five or 10 years ago, we weren't really talking about helmets for lacrosse. We weren't talking about possible helmets for soccer. Um, not all kids wore baseball batting helmets, softball batting helmets. So the, the data is coming out in bits and pieces uh, based on the number of injuries that we see um, on a regular basis. So skiing, snowboarding, sledding, uh, tubing accidents um, are getting more and more reported so the number leads us to lead down that track of taking a look at, see, what can we do to help prevent these more serious injuries? So let's talk about, do the helmets really do a good job at guarding against head injury in these winter sports? Do you see a difference? 
the data has shown that helmets are the best way to reduce or prevent uh, head injury. They will not prevent every head injury, and p kids can still have severe head injuries even if they wear a helmet, but those injuries are, are definitely lessened by wearing the helmet. Uh, snow sports are a very high-speed risk activity, and anything can happen when you're speeding down the slope and when children fall uh, we know that about 20 percent of the time a head injury is going to be involved and so you want to try to prevent those more major head injuries but helmets can even prevent the minor ones such as cuts and skull fractures okay how durable are the helmets so um ski helmets are rated for a different crash rating than a bike helmet, for instance. So um, one of our first points is please don't wear your bike helmet on the ski slope. You do need to have a ski helmet because the crash uh, ratio to the velocity of how fast you would crash is what the ski helmet is actually made for. And ski helmets are also, also made for multiple crashes. Bike helmets, on the other hand, is a one and done. If you get into one crash with your bike helmet, you're supposed to throw it out and get a new one. If you get, you can have the ability to have multiple crashes in a um, ski, helmet, ski helmet and it still be okay. As long as you haven't breached the surface and cracked it in any way, um, you can use your ski helmet over and over again. Okay. Well, I think that's important to make sure people realize they're not interchangeable. Absolutely. Yeah, and most kids won't want to wear a ski helmet on their bicycles um, because they're hot. So most of the time, bike riding is done in the in the nicer weather, and ski helmets are definitely insulated more for that winter sport. So usually that's the reason that kids won't want to interchange them, um, is just because of the, not because of the safety issue for the children's point of view, but really just because it's too warm for them to wear. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but with the, uh, with the winter helmets, are, are people wearing them in lieu of hats or ear protection? You or? can. You can. So the helmets um, that we have um, do have uh, linings on the inside of them, and most of the ski helmets that are offered um, on a commercial standpoint are all lined on the inside. However, some people still choose to wear a skull cap underneath their okay. helmet, depending on what you prefer. So it really is just a matter of preference. And if you are going to wear a skull cap underneath, we suggest that you wear that when you go to fit your helmet mm -hmm. to make sure that you get the right size. If you're going to constantly wear something underneath, make sure you get maybe a little bit bigger size so it fits properly. Good point. Well, let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate's Dr. Kim Wallenstein and nurse Kim Nasby. They're both from the Pediatric Trauma Service. Um, and we're talking about the importance of kids wearing helmets um, I know kids are helmets are important for kids, but what about for adults? Oh, it's across the board. It is. Um, okay. It is absolutely important. So if you've noticed the wave of even bike helmet usage um, among everybody who rides a bike now, it's not just the kids. Um, you do see adults that are more and more aware of their own um, ability to to prevent things. Um, so adults are more and more coming over to the, the idea of wearing helmets. And as Dr. Wallenstein stated earlier, it's very similar to the progression of seatbelt use. Um, you know, 25, 30 years ago, seatbelts were not even available in every single car that was produced. And now it is unheard of to be wearing, not wearing your seatbelt. Um, I don't know how you can even be a driver and not put your mm -hmm. seatbelt on because 
every single car that is made now has the bell and the so I think for injury prevention initiatives I think you are going to see these efforts for helmet usage um, increasing um, as time goes by to include not just children but to include adults and it's it's great if adults wear their helmets because then it becomes more of a family thing so if the children see their adults wearing helmets or their parents then they're more likely to wear helmets themselves and it's just a habit then mm -hmm. it becomes part of your gear you have to have exactly. right for well how does a person pick the right helmet for winter so it depends on what you are doing um there are certain helmets um that are all if let me say this. If you are going to purchase a ski or snowboarding helmet or a tubing helmet, um, I suggest that you try them on. Do not just buy something off the shelf. You do not want the helmet to be too snug fitting where you end up with a headache and cutting off circulation to the tissues in your head. Um, you also don't want a helmet that is too loose fitting that it bobbles on your head. So they are very customized. I would not recommend you sharing helmets with others. You should have your own so that you know the history behind that helmet. You know if it's been in a crash before. You know how many times you have fallen. Um, so that's my recommendation for helmets. But there are so many different um, brands out there, um, and all of them are crash test rated before they hit the market. Are so they, they all for the same? Uh, do you have to have one for skiing, one for sledding, or do they they work across the winter? They sports? work across the winter okay. sports. So you can't. But the style of them. So uh, my snowboarders um, like a certain style of helmet usually different from my skiers. So if you're looking for some aerodynamics, you can find a different helmet that might be a little sleeker. Um, for my snowboarders, they kind of like edgy things. They like their um, able, ability to hear music when they're, so they, oh, have, right. they have internal speakers put in things. So there's a lot of different parts out there to look at, but they are all across the board kind of crash test rated for the same. Okay. Well, let's talk about the sorts of injuries. I can imagine that concussion it might be one thing that you see um, with head injuries. Um, is that the only thing? No, but absolutely we see a lot of concussions uh, with all of the snow-related activities. Uh, but like I was mentioning a little bit earlier, we see the whole spectrum of head injuries. Um, when children fall and hit their heads, they can have lacerations or cuts on their heads. They can have skull fractures. Um, concussions definitely are one of the leading injuries. And then more severe injuries, uh, such as bleeding in the brain, which is clearly one of the more severe injuries, that patterns that we see. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you also, um, what is your advice for people who are skiing or snowboarding who witness a collision or, you know, what a skier hits another skier or hits a, a tree or something? What, um, what do you recommend that a bystander do to help that? They need person? to get help as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And if they're on a public course, um, we have really wonderful ski patrol um, at all of our local um, ski mountains. Um, we work very closely with them um, throughout the year for some of these initiatives. So my suggestion is to get help as soon as possible because some of these injuries, especially if they have to do with the head, uh, require um, specialized um, physicians to take care of them. So these individuals really do need to get to the trauma center. Um, we have the folks here that can take care of them. We have a full staff of pediatric trauma surgeons. We have neurosurgeons, neurologists, orthopedic surgeons. We have a lot of people here that can take care of all those severely injured patients. So there's not really a whole lot that they can do at the scene to care for someone with a head injury, except to be there 
um, for emotional support and to make sure they, they get help as soon as possible mm -hmm. so that they can get to the trauma center. Absolutely. I completely agree. And another thing is they should definitely get specialized help that exists on the slopes and not try to move or alter that patient um, themselves because movement, if the patient has a head injury or a neck injury, can be can worsen that injury. So try to keep them still and, and mm -hmm. get help quickly. Right. Um, does the helmet need to stay on or should the helmet come off? Absolutely, keep the helmet on. Keep the on. helmet on. Absolutely. Okay. We normally, for any sort of um, helmet injured person, whether it's even a motorized vehicle, so a motorcycle, um, or some bike or snow-related injury, if they have the helmet on, the patients arrive to us usually with their helmets on. Um, it gives some stability as they transfer the patient and as they move the patient, and it really needs to be up to our healthcare professionals in order to determine if that helmet needs to come off. Sometimes it does come off, but it's only done by paramedics and our physicians mm -hmm. once they arrive to the hospital. Okay. And uh, once they arrive at the hospital, can you sort of walk me through what they would expect to have happen to them or what would... So from a trauma standpoint, it's a very regimented system. So sometimes with the more minor injuries, those children will come in to the emergency department and be evaluated by the emergency physicians, and then trauma will be involved as a consult service if they have an injury that's identified, such as a concussion. If they're more severely injured, then it becomes what we call a trauma level. There's uh, two main levels, one and two, where one is the more severe, and then two is the one that's just less than that and that activates the entire trauma team which includes a whole variety of people that include the trauma surgeons the ED physicians the residents radiology and nursing and other specialized care and all of those people would meet the patient upon arrival and then there's a very regimented um, series of of things that happen for evaluation of the patient and, and management and treatment Interesting. Well, good to know. Thank you both for being here. That's good information. My guests have been from the Pediatric Trauma Service at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, Medical Director Dr. Kim Wallenstein and Nurse Kim Nasby. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Cancer takes many forms, and we take many approaches to handling it. Maxine Sussman teaches poetry at Rutgers University. She gives us a glimpse of the deep relationship between two sisters navigating cancer's reappearance in their lives. Here is Sussman's bucket list. What's yours for New Year's, my sister asks, this last evening of the old one, pink streaked above the fields. We're walking the road past the junk apple trees, the dogs' noses down, tails up in the ditch, scenting discoveries. Not the bucket you kick as it kills you, but the one with the song's hopeless hole that keeps things going for Liza and Henry. Resigned, or maybe good-natured nagging. No solution, so no end to the ending. Zigzag circles, sharing a life. We're just dark shapes, the flashlight busted. Once in a while, a car looms. Headlights too close, we back into the brush. Are we even at near range visible? 
Up the long slope home, she leans more on her walking stick, taps the center of her forehead. I've got the marker, breast cancer back after 15 years remission. Anyone, anytime, I answer, thinking of deaths in the ending year, holes in the bucket, that we all have the marker tattooed inside us. But I want this to have a happy ending, the pail by the fireplace filled with kindling. We're walking back to the cabin. She leans on her stick. I'm holding on to luck. The dogs on their leashes pull us uphill. In Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about integrative medicine and its role in pain management. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.